As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to The Audible, presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Stuart Mandel, back from vacation, joined by Bruce Feldman. I enjoyed Stuart, it feels like you've been away for a long time. It doesn't feel that way to me. I was gone for a grand total of six days to Mexico and had a really long travel day back. And now it's been, let's see, today is Tuesday. So I've been back here for, yeah, another six days. So, But I did just miss being able to be on the podcast that you had with Ted Miller and Jim Donnan. I texted Ted and said it was, it was great to hear his voice and a little bit surreal that it was coming on my own podcast, but uh, I hope people enjoyed that interview. It was fun to catch up with, with Ted. He and I have had some conversations offline, but just to have him back on the podcast, and it was nice to get some feedback also, you know, both about Ted and, and Jim Donnan and his story about going to see what turned out to be Bill Snyder, you know, when he went down to way back in North Texas days. So his perspective was unique. And I was at the combine the last few days. And invariably, when you're around other media people, you talk about the business. And so we talked a little bit about some of the comments and some of the things that would involve Ted and his departure. So if you haven't listened to that edition of the Audible, please do so. So Stu, it's good to have you back. We're going to get into our dueling columns on our top 25 coaches list in a bit. Did you watch much of the Combine on TV? Ha, no. Uh, it, it would be on at various places I went on the TV, but uh, I don't really know why you need to watch it when there's Twitter. You know, everybody's posting everybody's 40 times. But that's uh, like saying you don't, need to, you don't need to watch anything because there's Twitter. Well, but the difference is I like, I mean, why wouldn't you want to watch an actual football game? Instead, you know, that I don't want to just get the score. But in terms of what time somebody ran in the 40, you really need to watch that live? I don't know. I think it's interesting to hear the back and forth between the between the analysts and, and kind of what the draft buzz is on some of these guys. And it's not just 40 times that they'll get into. But Well, uh, you went to it. And just to clarify, you don't actually, like, you're not actually in the stadium on the field watching them run, right? You're back interviewing people. Yeah. So there's there's different segments when people are are made available in, and it's usually, I feel like it goes for about two or three hour blocks that happen in a, in a 
bigger room where on the other side of it is actually you can see the bench press that's done where it's almost like a, a where it is an audience is there you can go watch that as well as a, a big version of radio row so there's there's just a lot there's a lot going on there and it's really as much for anything for my sake as for the for the networking and just kind of the schmoozing that you have because everybody in in football in the nfl is there and you invariably see a lot of college coaches also come through there at some point during during the week i would say probably like a third of our top 25 list seem to be around yeah in india one day or another well what was your most interesting conversation or gossip that you picked up on while you were there i can't tell you the gossip stuff because that's that's why it's gossip there's a, a lot of stuff pops in your head where I, I ran into an NFL running back coach I know who spent 15 minutes just gushing about Josh Jacobs, the running back from Alabama, and how much he loves him. Everything from what he saw on film and the way he plays the game to how engaging he was in his interview. So some of that you know, stuff backs up with, with the things I think most Alabama fans and people who probably cover the SEC would have suspected. And then there's the other layers of it where, and you and I have talked about this before, where the NFL media gets to see stuff that most people in college have kind of gotten cliched on by, you know, for a couple of years. And that invariably happens. But it's a kind of fascinating little window into the world. I had, had dinner on Saturday night with a, with a friend who used to be in college a long time ago. And he's now in the NFL. He's been in the NFL for a while. And just his perspective on this is a, this is maybe one of those things where he's talking about they had to hire a position coach and they brought in a bunch of guys from college, college coaching candidates. And he was like, they all were like trying to impress us with who they recruited and this and that. And like, that doesn't matter to us. We want to know, can you, can you, can you get the running back ready? So he can, he can handle protect protections against this, this, and this. And it's just like, it's such a different world about what they value and it's you know some of the game within a game stuff i had beers with a guy who's an nfl defensive line coach and he was basically talking about everything from the systems that they play in because so much of what we do and you know how everything works is stats driven and he said certain guys have value but you can, it can be very misleading by sacks or, or whatnot depending on what kind of system they play in and it's as much as we talk about like, okay, this guy runs the air raid, this guy runs, you know, the option or whatever, there's very different systems in the NFL, especially on defenses and how it translates into player value. So to get a real deep dive into that was always, you know, very informative for me. So the big storyline to me still, uh, as it was a couple months ago, is Kyler Murray, who it's been pretty remarkable to watch the the hype train in terms of like, I don't know about you, but do you remember when the first time you realized that there was actually a real possibility he was going to not go through with his A's contract? Because to me, I don't think it was until the Heisman ceremony. Yeah, I was going to say it was around into the Heisman. I mean, one thing I should also bring up, and this is, came up with a conversation I had with an NFL scout who's not that far from, removed from the college game. And he said, we mentioned a player, it's LJ Collier, who was a really good defensive lineman at, at TCU. And he kind of mocked the idea that all of a sudden, you know, this guy's stock was on the rise. He was like, you know, you guys in the media do that a lot where it's like his stock is on the rise. Well, you don't know that his stock is on the rise. It's just like all of a sudden it's now on your radar 
or somebody told you this, it's like you don't know what any where the stock was within the actual teams. And so it's a lot of times, you know, he's the example of, well, Matt Barkley fell to be a fourth round pick. He's like, who's to say Matt Barkley was ever going to be a first round pick? Who's to say that the quarterback from Oregon, Justin Herbert, if he had come out, no one was necessarily saying he was going to be the first pick in the draft. I mean, that's something you guys kind of gossip about. And then it it takes on a, a little bit of a life of its own. And so in regard to the Kyler Murray stuff, I think the key piece in this is will, you know, how open are the Cardinals to making that move and shuffling things up to go chase Kyler Murray as opposed to put the franchise for Cliff Kingsbury on Josh Rosen? And then what can you get for Josh Rosen? And I think all those, you know, kind of balls go up in the air and it becomes more of a moving target from there. So it's an interesting it's an it's kind of an interesting subplot of the combine. If you had the first pick in the draft, what would you do still? Well, hang on. Before we go there, just the fact that we're even having this conversation is what I'm referring to. So at first it was, well, he's going to play baseball. And then he's starting to think about football and it's, well, but he's so short. There's no way he's going to go in the first round. And then he declares and it's, okay, yeah, he is going to go in the first round. But he'll, who said there was, no, the way he was, who said there was no way he was going to That's my point. Who said he was never, no way he was going to go in the first round, though? The people who write about this stuff. And talk okay, about that, but stuff. that's my point, though. Yeah. To that. Well, okay, no, I agree. You know, the one I always think of is Brett Hundley. He, you know, he didn't have the greatest last season at UCLA, but I find it hard to believe that he was truly, you know, the, the one of the first, you know, I remember going to Pac-12 Media Day before his last season, and Jim Mora was making the case why he should be the number one pick. And I think most draft, early draft boards have him as a high first-round pick, and he ends up going in the fourth round. I don't think it's... Well, when you say early draft boards, you're talking about mock drafts. You're not talking about the actual boards. No, I'm talking about... Nobody knows what the actual boards are. Nobody ever sees well, what the actual boards are. So you're going totally off these mock drafts, and it's all, they're the all problem, guessing, though. right? It's, it's, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. the problem, though. But, so there's a difference to me between random draft... And look, we, we have a lot of respect for a lot of the people who do draft evaluations in the media, but that doesn't mean that they know where players are being evaluated by the actual teams. Now, with the right. Kyler Murray number one talk, I mean, Peter King, who's as connected as anybody in the NFL, was writing about that in his column Monday, not because he personally thinks Kyler Murray is the best player in the draft, because the sources that he's talking to are saying this is a really legit possibility. Me, personally, I love Kyler Murray, but I would take Dwayne Haskins. Uh, I think just think he's a surer bet. But if the Cardinals do take him, watch out. Because if anybody can figure out how to maximize him in an offensive scheme. I don't know if Cliff Kingsbury is going to be a great NFL head coach, but I'm pretty sure he will be able to score points with Kyler Murray as his quarterback. If Dwayne Haskins and Kyler Murray were in the draft last year, where do you think they fit? Among quarterbacks, I'm sorry, I should qualify that. Remind me who the quarterbacks were last year. Okay, so the quarterbacks were Baker Mayfield, yeah. Sam Darnold, Josh okay. Allen, Josh Rosen, Lamar Jackson. And speaking of not knowing what's going on in the draft boards, nobody ever said Baker Mayfield would be the number one pick until about two days before the draft, if you remember. Right. I think that's hard to say because those guys you're talking about from last year, for the most part, take Josh Allen out of it, had more of a track record and Baker Mayfield did it for three years Kyler Murray did it for one year Dwayne Haskins did it for one year so uh, I think I would have more confidence in in May I didn't think Darnold was necessarily ready so but I concede that he was really talented so I would have to think just from an NFL standpoint that Mayfield 
Darnold, and possibly Rosen would have still gone higher. What do you think? I, I think we're not. We're pretty much in agreement. I agree with what you said about Dwayne Haskins earlier. I'll say this: I think, and this is well, this will be determined over a longer period of time. I think there's a difference between Baker Mayfield and Kyler Murray. I I think Baker Mayfield will be a better quarterback in the NFL than Kyler Murray. I have the same hesitation what you just said. Both guys have only played one year in this these first round picks. And so it's there's there is less of a sample size. Dwayne Haskins played against better competition. He played against better defenses and he did really well when he played Washington, Michigan, you know, he's played some really good defenses that had a lot of NFL future NFL talent on it. He lit them up. So I also like that when Dwayne Haskins went in against Michigan the year before when he was thrown in because of an injury to JT Barrett, he played extremely well. So, yeah, I know he didn't run a great 40 time. Contrary to what Stephen A. Smith said, nobody ever thought of him. Nobody else ever thought of him as much of a runner anyway. But I really like him. Kyler is going to be very intriguing on this one. I think he probably would have, if Darnold and Mayfield were were in this draft or vice versa, I think both guys are better. What's interesting to me now is where would Rosen get, what would he get traded for? You know, somebody said a third round pick, that surprises me. Even a second round pick, if you told me who would you rather have as your quarterback or if you're an NFL team, Josh Rosen, Drew Locke, or any of the other guys who are coming out in this year after Haskins, I would say Josh Rosen. I don't even think it's that close. Seems a little early to be throwing in the towel on him. Yeah, and look, he played, when he did play this year, he had the worst offensive line in the NFL. So we'll see, you know, what it's going to be. But again, when you have a a different head coach and a different regime, things change. And, um, you know, beyond that, I think what everybody came away raving this weekend is something we kind of expected, which was there is a ridiculous amount of good, good athletic D linemen that are coming in this draft. And that was underscored. I mean, Montez sweat one time, Michigan state, then now at Mississippi state, six, six, two sixty, ran a four, four, one forty. That's insane. Nobody's ever run like that at that size. And there was a bunch of D linemen who, who did that. So, and they like, they backed up the hype. You know, we mentioned, Rashawn Gary a a long time ago with those freak numbers he did pretty much everything that Michigan staff said he had he did in their offseason program he backed all that crazy numbers and crazy hype up what he did in Indy I mean that to me was the most interesting thing DK Metcalf had ridiculous numbers at, at Ole Miss in his workout stuff he did all that I mean so but how do you balance the in the case of the two guys you just mentioned Rashawn Gary and Metcalf, you know, obviously they are freaks, which I know you are in love with, but, you know, Metcalf didn't have overwhelming statistics at Ole Miss. Gary, I think maybe that, you know, because he was, I think the number one player in the country when he came out of high school, you know, the expectations were through the roof and he didn't, you know, he didn't really fulfill that to me. He was a very good player when he was healthy. But he wasn't, you know, what Jadamian Clowney was in his college career or something like that. So how do you balance, okay, great, they're, they're workout wonders, but are they actually going to be all pro kind of football players? I don't know. D- DK Metcalf is an especially interesting one. I mean, look, he, did, he played, I think, played six or seven games this year. He averaged 22 yards a catch. But the concern with him, to me, is as freaky as he is, as explosive as he is, you know, his shuttle times weren't great. Those were the things that were that were really subpar. 
And the thing I've heard from, from guys close to that program is he's just doesn't have, he's not a natural, uh, pass catcher, you know, his hands, it just doesn't sound the same when he tries to catch it like it did, you know, like it does AJ Brown. Now also he, he, there were two other really big time receivers, AJ Brown, Demarcus Lodge, who will probably play in the NFL for a long time. So I think that's going to take a little bit away from his numbers, but he is a, he is a legit big play threat. It's just, are you going to take a top 10 pick with a guy who there is some concern about how smooth and how polished a receiver he is. And that's up to the NFL. I mean, this feels like the Oakland Raiders draft kind of player, you know, where he's big and super fast, but you wonder about the consistency and some of the nuance there. Rashawn Gary, I think, I think he's really, really gifted and he was a big force. It's just, there were some times where, you know, I talked to a lot of people who who evaluated him, other defensive line coaches around the league with the with the caveat was did his production match his athleticism? And they all came away as they think he's a legit top five kind of player from what they watched on film. So it's going to be uh, it's going to be interesting to see where my guess is if the trade happens where Kyler Murray goes number one. I suspect it would be really hard for the 49ers to not go Bosa number two. They need an outside edge rusher. He fits into the scheme they they run. You know, Josh Allen from Kentucky is super productive and he's very athletic. He's a little more Ross than uh, than Bosa is. And then you have Rashawn Gary. Those are all, I think, really good options, though, for the Niners. I didn't really intend for this to be a long NFL draft discussion, but I do have one topic related to defensive linemen. What happened to Ed Oliver? I mean, for three years, we talked about this guy as the future number one pick in the draft. And now I'm not even seeing him mentioned in the top 10. A lot of it, I think, was he, you know, in the play, in the system he was in, he freelanced quite a bit. He's a, certainly an explosive athlete, but I think there was some hesitation on how does he fit for in different systems. I mean, I think he came anyway, like 285 around there. He tested well, at least in terms of he vertical jumped 36 inches, which is a lot. And he was strong. But I, I don't know. Is if People are going to compare him to Aaron Donald. There were some people I talked to who didn't think he was as good as Aaron Donald. But again, I think it's he's got to fit in the right system. And what the comparison is beyond that, I think people aren't sure. And to say, he, you know, if he goes 12 or something like that, that's no knock. I mean, it's that good of a defensive line draft. I mean, there's a guy who probably won't go in the first round at all because of injury, and that's Jeffrey Simmons. I mean, he's a guy, if he had he was injured and if he was allowed to be at the combine this year, I think he would have created a ton of buzz just in terms of that. But my guess is you may not see Ed Oliver go in the top 20 because there's certain systems he doesn't fit in, and there's going to be certain defensive linemen that I think will be – be more valued than him so but it's a long time between now and now and april he didn't have a great junior season but his first two years he was about as dominant as an interior lineman as i've seen since indomitian sue uh i i realize he's not the prototypical size but uh this may be a case of what we were talking about earlier it was all kind of uninformed or um you know educated guesses until you actually get to this time in their process where you're actually hearing what the NFL teams themselves think, and apparently they don't think of them quite as highly as college football media did uh, over the last couple of years. Before we get to coaches' rankings, though, there is one other news topic we need to address. Jim Delaney, retiring as the Big Ten commissioner. June of 2020 is the date that they've said, but he's also, he did various interviews on Monday and said 
you know, I think the plan is that the successor would start before then and there'd be a little bit of a transition. Can I ask you a question about yeah. this? So I noticed, and it's something I wasn't wading into uh, much, but, you know, you tweet out the news and you see all, like, I don't know, 90% of the responses are, thank God, Christmas comes early, that sort of thing. I don't want to say, does it surprise you that fans are so excited that he is he is stepping down? And I don't know if those are SEC fans or, or, or who is primarily, but it seemed like there was a ton of people feeling that. Well, I think all of these, none of these guys are, there's something about being a powerful power five commissioner that just makes you polarizing in general. But I would, I would wonder where that's coming from. You know, like you said, if it were fans from other parts of the country uh, that just don't like him for whatever reason, okay. But if you're a fan of a big 10 school and you don't understand the position that he's put your school in through mostly the crazy TV rights deals that he's been able to negotiate. I mean, he basically started the whole, the whole movement uh, when he started the Big Ten Network and made it a more competitive landscape out there. If you're a Big Ten fan who doesn't like him, I don't know, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> like, who, who would you have wanted instead for the last 30 years? Now, he had some misses. Uh, most notably, I will uh, forever think that he overstepped things and, and should regret having invited Maryland and Rutgers. He is still doubling down and defending it. If you saw his interviews, that it's a long-term play. And I don't put those two schools in the same exact category, by the way. Maryland's right. actually I... been quite successful in most of its sports other than football, whereas Rutgers' whole athletics department has been a mess. But other than that, you know, I think he's done far more good for that conference than, than anything. In a in twenty seconds, give me what you think his biggest accomplishment was. I think it's got to be the Big Ten Network, just because it was. You know, I mean, you could say Penn State adding Penn State. You know, that was obviously a big paradigm change, but you know, the Big Ten Network was so unorthodox at the time. People thought he was nuts. Like, who's gonna who's gonna subscribe for that? Who's gonna pay for that? And you know, it totally changed the landscape of college sports TV. All right, Stu, let's get into it. Uh, I should preface this by saying you've done these rankings for a long time. Probably, I, I believe you did it. started doing it the first year Kirk Ferentz got hired at Iowa. Is that what, what it was? No. <laughs> Are you serious? I think I was in college still. I think, I think it wasn't until I got to Fox that I started doing these top 25 rankings, uh, like a full top 25 ranking every year. And every year I would do it, and we'd come on this podcast, and you would bash my picks. So I'm happy to see that you decided to actually, instead stick of just picking it apart, to actually stick your neck out and do your own ranking. So by the way, by the way, did if I'm not mistaken, I remember you would give it, one of the things that got dragged out was you pointed out at a conversation we had had in the of your rankings where you gave me a hard time for saying that Clay Helton was not one of the, like the top 40 coaches in the country. Yeah, uh, that was coming off of the the two decent seasons. <laughs> Certainly not since last season. So I think what, what, what I want to point out here, and somebody had mentioned this to me on Twitter, which I think is the case, and maybe it isn't or isn't, but I feel like you have, and this word is going to make it sound worse than it is, but I feel like you have more of a recency bias than I do. I think uh, that's probably the case, yeah, although I state flat out at the top, it's not a career achievement award. It's weighted heavily toward recent performance. Hopefully not too much based on just last season, but sometimes that's unavoidable. Yeah, so... Well, we have the so, same top four. Saban, Dabo, Peterson, Lincoln, Riley. It was interesting is, with Urban out of it, after the first two, there wasn't anybody that I felt... 
you know, I, I'm fine. You know, I feel good and I can make a perfectly good argument why Chris Peterson be, should be number three. But it's not, it's not as obvious, I would say, as maybe some past years. Uh, as I said to you offline, two guys who, since I've been doing this, were always very high, usually top five uh, for me, were Gary Patterson and Mark D'Antonio. But it was hard for me to justify that at this point. Two of the last three years, they've each had mediocre, and in one case with D'Antonio, three and nine seasons. So I bumped them down. And now we've got some new blood up there and Peterson, Riley. I have Brian Kelly, number five. Who do you have? I have Jimbo Fisher. I have Jimbo Fisher. We should point out also, you didn't, you actually shared the top spot with Dabo and Nick Saban. Yeah, I did one A and one B because obviously Saban's been, been at this level for longer. He's got more national championships. I get it. But it seems like a slight to Dabo given that over the last four years, they've been exactly the same. So By the, by the way, we should, we should point out, you mentioned Urban. You actually had space for new, four empty spots for guys who are no longer coaching this year, I just looked. Oh, yeah? So you obviously had Urban. You had Mark Richt as number 12. He's out this oops. year. Yeah, oops. There's a bigger uh, oops coming. You had Robert Petrino from Louisville, <laughs> number 16. And then you had Bill Snyder at number 20. I'm not sure which is, you know, more... Of a, of a huge whiff in hindsight that Petrino was in there last year or that Brian Kelly was not in there at all. And now I have number five. I can't figure, I can't put myself in the headspace. You know, they weren't coming off four and eight. They were coming off 10 wins. Why on earth I didn't have Brian Kelly in there at all? So we're going to, I guess, bounce off of each other with some of these things. And so I'm going to ask you the same question I, you know, have contemplated myself. In retrospect, now the thing is, this thing is posted and living, what is your biggest, eh, I probably would have liked to have put this guy in here in retrospect. Um, is there not one? Yeah, there is one. And that is Jeff Tedford, who didn't have a great ending at Cal, obviously. But since he's been Fresno State, 11 wins, 12 wins, Mountain West Championship. The problem is... Who do you I, take out? I, yeah, I ran out of room. And in fact, we're about to talk about our biggest discrepancy. And it's a guy who I did have in there. And then when... when so, so here's what happened. I had Jim Harbaugh and Paul Christ in there in a version that I sent. I sent this a while ago. It might have been before my vacation. And I CC'd you on it. And you rightfully pointed out, I think you're going to regret not having Matt Campbell in there. And I was like, yep, meant to have him in there. So I got to knock somebody out. And then while I'm at it, I'm like, oh, wait, I want David Cutcliffe in there. You know, why, is, why do I not have him in there? So now I have to knock two people out. And that ended up being Harbaugh and Christ. Neither of us have Christ. But here's the big discrepancy. You have Jim Harbaugh all the way up at number 11. Are you still, how much when you do that, how much are you still kind of crediting him for Stanford and how much of it is what you think he's done at Michigan? I'm crediting him a lot for Stanford. I'm crediting some for his work with the 49ers. Wait a um, minute. This is a college coach rank. It is. I'm just saying, look, I'm, I'm not discounting it. I think that speaks to his, to, to his coaching ability. But um, I'm also looking at what he did do in Michigan. And it's not – here's the thing. I mean, people are talking about it like it's been a disaster. You know, he's had three 10-win seasons in his four years there. Michigan only had two 10-win seasons in the previous 11 years. I think people forgot how bad and uh, mediocre Michigan had been. So, again, and I feel like we're on the same page with this. When Jim Harbaugh came back to Michigan – I think you and I both had him third behind Urban and Saban, right? Yeah, he's kind of progressively moved down he, the list for me. He's Yeah, he's backslid, right? And yeah. I, I get that. 
I mean, look, last year you had a 13. Yeah. I think last season, specifically the Ohio State game, is the moment that I said, all right, I've been giving him credit. You know, I I think what he did at Stanford was one of the great turnarounds uh, in the history of the sport. And so I kept waiting and said, okay, well, you know, it was a rebuilding job. I'm going to continue to give him credit. But now it's four years in. And you look at it, and you like you're you're giving him credit for having done better than Brady Hoke and Rich Rod. Rich Rod. But at the end of the day, Michigan, we I think you would agree, is one of the kind of dozen or so blue bloods I mean, of the sport, right? It wasn't like Lloyd Carr was doing better. Lloyd Carr had a national title season tw- over twenty years Lloyd ago. Lloyd Carr was going to Rose Bowls, though. I mean, it, he, he he petered out toward the end, but. Uh, I think what Harbaugh's I mean, done at Michigan. You're so far. you're dinging you're dinging Jim Harbaugh. By the way, now I think the Big Ten is harder now than it was when Lloyd Carr was there. Right? I'm dinging Jim Harbaugh basically for this. He went ten and three and had an eight and one record in the Big Ten last year. I'm not saying he should be coach of the year. I'm definitely not saying that. But you're, you're taking him from being like 13 last year to completely blowing him out of the top 25. Well, part of that is that basically, you know, like I said, it's based on recent accomplishment. At this point, what happened at Stanford nine years ago is not really playing into that ranking. I just think you look at what he's done to this point at Michigan, yeah, on the surface, 10-3, and three, that's great, but who's he beaten? It's, it's been, hold, as I said, he's holding serve. He's beating the teams Michigan should beat, and then when it comes time for the big games against... Ohio State, Florida in the bowl game this past year, Florida State in the Orange Bowl. He's not winning those games. So the stat now is 1-8 in eight against the top 10. And so basically, and maybe this well, is just I mean, a reflection I... of my criteria, yep. you know, I started looking at my whole list. I'm like, you know, pretty much every guy on here is somebody who you would say has overachieved relative to, you know, how the, the history of that program or the recent history of that program. Harbaugh, at best, has held serve, and some would say has no, underachieved. No, it's, it's much better than what it was under Brady, Hoke, and Rich Rod. But it's Michigan. I mean, the expectation, you shouldn't be comparing them to those two. You should be comparing them to the history of Michigan football. They're supposed to win Big Ten championships. They're supposed to at least beat Ohio State once in four years. No, and, I, I agree. Look, that's why I don't have him in my top ten. I mean, as I said, it is he has backslid. But you can't not give him credit. I mean, they blew out Wisconsin last year. They they blew out Michigan State on the road. They blew out Penn State. I mean, it's not like he's lost every big game he's been in. You know, Penn State last year, that was a really impressive win. No question about that. I mean, that was a top 15 Penn State team. They beat him 42-7. to seven. They played Michigan State on the road. They beat him by two touchdowns. They played well, Wis- it just depends on how you look at it. I mean, I think you would agree that the three best teams they faced last year, once all was said and done, and you kind of... You know, I mean, I they beat by, your alma mater, which which came from the West. They beat them, too. Right. I don't go by... On the road. I think you would agree when you look back at the end of the season, you don't go by what the team, what the opponent was ranked at the time. It's, you know, now you've had a whole season to say, what were their most impressive wins? Who were the best teams they played? I think you would agree that the three best teams Michigan played last year were Notre Dame, who ended up making the playoff, Ohio State, who went to the Rose Bowl, and mm-hmm. Florida in the Peach Bowl. Those three games, you know, the score of Notre Dame, 24-17, was respectable. But if you remember that game, they were pretty much dominated physically. And they got blown out by Ohio State and Florida. So they won 10 games, but in the three games that mattered most, they weren't competitive. So, you know, look, I had them in there originally. I wasn't intending to take them out entirely. But like you said earlier, it's like, who are you going to take out? Who are you going to, you know, I wanted Matt Campbell in there. I wanted Jeff Brom in there. These are guys who are overachievers. So he ended up not making the cut. And Paul Chris didn't make the cut, and I think he's 42-12 and 12 at Wisconsin. I've just ran out of room. 
Well, let's talk about a little bit about the Big Ten West. You and I are pretty much in the same spot with Pat Fitzgerald. I was torn a little bit on Kirk Ferentz. And when you look back, Kirk Ferentz in the last four years, and he's been coaching for a long time, he actually has one, is a better record than, than Fitz does, and they're in the same division, right? And The fact so that you think that it's as easy to win whatever that number I'm is. Not that saying that. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that, but I'm just talking about the gap. We both have Fitz in the teens. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm 17. Yeah, and I, I think I have him somewhere around there. Let me see what I got him at. And it's just like, it's just the, um, I, I have him 16. And he, he belongs there, no doubt. I'm just saying, this, this is reflective of where I, I'm, I'm explaining my rationale, because I don't have Ference either, but I was torn on it. He has a better record than, than Fitz does. Well, as you, as you said, so, uh, so does Chris. And Chris has a much better record than both of those guys. But I say he walked into a situation. You know, Gary Anderson won 20 games in the previous two years. He's done better than Gary Anderson. And Bielema won three, shared uh, three Big Ten titles before that. So they had been rolling for a while. Whereas, you know, Ference, I think, has, has really established a culture. I don't think they're, they're backsliding at all. I think you could make a, make a legitimate case for him as much as anything like that. I was just pointing out that, okay, I think it's harder to win at, Wisconsin, at Northwestern than it probably is at the other two. And that's why I think you, you and I both have him in there as opposed to as opposed to Chris, at least. Northwestern is 26-9 and nine in the Big Ten over the last four years. Never in a million years would I think that that's something you could do at Northwestern. So, but, but look, you and I agree he should be in there. I think I haven't gotten a single email or tweet or anything saying Pat Fitzgerald shouldn't be ranked in there. In terms of Ference, uh, I was talking to our Iowa writer, Scott Doctrine, about this. He's the ultimate enigma in that... Scott or Ference? <laughs> Ference. Scott is no okay. enigma. Uh, in that... You can just, you know, take any set of numbers or stats to justify either saying why he's a great coach and why he's a mediocre or, or, you know, less than average coach. To me, and you're actually the one that originally pointed this out to me, I think, but do you know that in in this decade, starting in 2010, well, you do know this because you're the one who alerted me to it, they have finished in the AP Top 25 once, Iowa has, and that was the Rose Bowl year. They did finish 25th last year in the coaches poll. So... If I'm saying this guy's one of the 25 best coaches in college football, he's not at Vanderbilt. He's not at some school that you would think is just lucky to win six or seven. But he's not at a place that's a recruiting hotbed either. Absolutely not. It's a developmental program. I mean, look how I didn't realize this honestly till uh, till this morning. Iowa football was horrific in the 70s, and then Hayden Fry got there and he got it rolling. And but so was you know what else was terrible at football around that same time? Wisconsin. You know, one thing I've never understood, and by the way, the Iowa fan base itself is very divided on Ference. I mean, the ones that you and I were hearing from are the ones who will defend him to the death, and there's others who are sick of him. I mean, that team last year underachieved. That team should not have gone five and four in the Big Ten. Some poor coaching decisions along the way. You know, I've never, in terms of the set, kind of settling for mediocrity that a lot of Iowa fans seem to do, what I've never understood is what advantage does Wisconsin have over Iowa? Why is Iowa content going? seven and six, eight and five every year, when you see a program in Wisconsin that has no recruiting footprint whatsoever, winning, you know, 10, 11, 12 games regularly? I mean, it's a fair question. So um, that wasn't, that was, that one I didn't, I knew Harbaugh would be controversial and I definitely wrestled with that one. 
But Ferentz, I mean, frankly, it never even occurred to me to put him in there. And it's nothing against him as a person or anything like that. I just think he's one of the 25 best. If you, here's a good, you know, and here's a, a good example of that. So as you can imagine, the angry Iowa fans are upset at me for including one name in particular at his expense. Scott, Matt Campbell. Scott Frost. Well, Matt Campbell too, but Scott Frost in particular, right? He went 4-8. Um, what a joke. Scott Frost is two years removed from taking a UCF program from 0-12 to 13-0. And I have him 25th. So what, what is, I, like, it would never occur to me to put Ference in there if I'm taking a guy who's two years removed from 13-0 and 0 and he's barely making the list. Ference certainly hasn't done anything like that anytime recently. Yeah, I actually had Frost 22 on that. So some ones we had a little bit of a discrepancy. Well, there's another one we had a big discrepancy on. Chip Kelly. Chip Kelly. You have him... And by the way, this was not an easy one for me to handle either, because uh, kind of like Harbaugh, he's a guy who... You had him in the top 10 last year. You had him 9. Yeah, and then he went to UCLA, and he went 3-9 and nine in the first year. I wasn't going to drop him out, but at this point... Which you almost did. But at this point, you know, that dominant Oregon run was in, you know, ended in 2012. So we're seven years removed from that. The one season of college football he's coached since then was 3-9. and nine. So There's I wanted like... him in the list, but I didn't think I could rank him anywhere near where... Where do you have him? 12th? I have him seventh. Seventh. Here's why, and I'll explain it. So, and this is this is the guy. So, Mike Leach's first year at Washington State, they won three games. They also won three games his third year there. And I do think people, you know, I'm going to give him. I don't say I'll give him a pass because he, I would have probably had him fourth if I had done this, or third if I had done this without Urban uh, last year. But I think it does take a while for people to, to for people to get their systems settled, and I know what he inherited at UCLA. You know, people can look about recruiting rankings; they don't have guys who are making impacts. I'm sorry, like about one of the few recruits they had in the last three or four years who proved to be a big time guy was Josh Rosen. And Josh Rosen left after three years; he wasn't there. So I look at that. You look and say, okay, well, they went three and nine. Well, they got a lot better as the year went on. They averaged almost 500 yards a game in the last month of the season. That's about 150 more than they averaged in the first two months. So that. And then you look at what he did do at Oregon 46 and seven. In his last three years, their worst finish was fourth. You know, he took over in 2008 when USC and Pete Carroll were like on top of everything. And he was three and one against them. They averaged 50 points a game. They pretty much dominated them several times. So, and I also, I'm not going to discount all the innovation he made, not just scheme-wise, but many teams practice completely different now than they did because of the way, stuff he implemented. So that's why I have him up where I, where I do. Yeah, he was the most innovative. I, I think, um, you know, Lincoln Riley holds that title now, but he was the most innovative offensive coach in college football. Uh, at his time in Oregon. And I, I still think he'll do well. I do. I think uh, it could be exactly like the leech trajectory you're talking about when you come But you, you dropped him down program. 15 spots off, off, of, off of... Well, because I got to rank it based on what he's done to this point, not what I think might happen in the future. You know, yeah, I'm sure next year, one or two of these guys will be the... We'll look back in the, and wince the same way we did about Petrino. Petrino... Uh, you know, for most of his career, I really did think in much the same way. I thought he was an extremely good offensive coach. He won, you know, he took Louisville to a BCS bowl game. He took Arkansas to a BCS bowl game. He produced a Heisman Trophy winner at Louisville. So I don't think the guy forgot how to coach. Uh, it's just regrettable to 
look back and, and, and after the debacle of a year he had last year to look back and say, oh my gosh, only a year ago I had him 16th. And so there'll be somebody like that off this year's list. Maybe, maybe Jim Harbaugh will win the national title next year and everybody will plaster that on my wall for sure, but I can't predict. Yeah, a couple of other ones we had discrepancies on. I had Dino Babers quite a bit higher than you did, I see, and I had Kirby Smart quite a bit lower. I had him, uh, okay, let's talk about Kirby Smart for a second. Yep. So the reaction I've been getting to that one is, uh, having him at number six, is that non-Georgia fans think that's way too high, and Georgia fans think that's too low. I realize he, he, where do you have him? I have him 12. So I'm let surprised me ask any, you this. any what's Georgia the, fans think he's too low. What's the, Explain to me the eight-gap difference for you between Lincoln Riley and Kirby Smart. That is a good question. That's where I am on that. So Kirby Smart's first year, they go eight and five, right? Four and four in the SEC. And since then, 14 and two in the SEC. He came very close to winning a national title a year ago, and he's done well against Alabama. But he's also been blown out by LSU and Auburn. And he took over a really good program. I mean, I thought what Mark Rick, you yourself, where you had Mark Rick as a top, top 10, top 12 coach before that. It wasn't like he took over a thing that wasn't great. I feel like a lot of what, again, I have Kirby Smart 12. I don't think that's bad. I think that's pretty high up. I am higher than David Shaw. I'm high, higher than Dino Babers and, and a bunch of other, you know, I'm higher than Tom Herman, who has, who has slightly more of a track record. But, you know, this is one of the comments I got from people who think he's too low. Kirby Smart. Meanwhile, Kirby Smart, the mastermind behind the fake punt versus Bama, has imploded at the end of the past two years in a weak SEC East. Wait, 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 so, wait, wait, wait. How did Georgia implode the year before that? They won the SEC that year and came within a Tua miracle play I think this of guy's winning the national title. The, uh, losing, a, losing a big lead in the national title game, I guess. That's what this is. This I mean, if that's your standard... I think that Lincoln Riley and Kirby Smart belong pretty close to each other. They both, I mean, Lincoln Riley took over a, a, you know, a, a better situation than Kirby Smart did, obviously. Lincoln Riley's also taken two guys who are transfers, who, by the way, neither won until he got settled in. You know, Baker Mayfield was, just showed up at Oklahoma. He made him the starter. He turned him into a Heisman, Heisman guy. Kyler Murray, he didn't do much at Texas A&M. He turned him into a Heisman Trophy winner. That's, I think you got to give him credit for that. Oh, I am. That's why I have him much just like you, number four. But, you know, in terms of wins and losses over the last two years, I mean, Kirby Smart and Lincoln Riley, they met in, a, in the Rose Bowl, obviously, a game that went to overtime. Riley's been to the playoff two years in a row. Smart missed the playoff last year. But, it's you know, at the end of the day, when, Kirk, I mean, when Georgia are... goes 11-3 and three and that's considered a disappointing season, you know you're doing something right now. I will say the re- level he's recruited at, Three straight we'll, top three classes. We'll, we'll see, Stu. I like yeah. That. Well, again, though, I can't predict the future. Maybe he'll never deliver that national title. But uh, I mean, I've had right some people. Some people go, "Oh, we signed such and such class this year." I'm like, well, "That's great. We don't know how good players these guys are. But you that's don't a know big until part they of the play." Job. Recruiting that, is a huge part of the job, and he is doing it, as well as it is. But any coach, it, it, not it is. But you can't you can't immediately assume what the class is going to be like. I mean, if that's the case, Chris Peterson wouldn't be high on this list. I mean, you're telling me on one hand, you're talking about guys who have overachieved with where they are. I mean, this isn't a top 25 recruiters list. No, of course not. But it's also not like Georgia went 7-6 last year. No, the last two I years, get... they've gone 13-2 and two and 11-3. and three. 
I and agree. They've been within Stu, a hair have, of Alabama two years in a row. So. I have them much higher than I would have had Mark Richt. Let's put it this way. Yeah. I have them higher than David Shaw. I think David Shaw is a really good coach. I have them higher than Dino, ba- Dino Babers. But when I looked at it, you know, we talked about Harbaugh. I'm not having him higher than Mike Leach because I think what you want to talk about expectations. I mean, Mike Leach has knocked it out of the park there. Brian Kelly, I, I guess you can make a good art. You can make an argument. O'Brien Kelly versus Kirby Smart. Gary Patterson, to me, I think Gary Patterson is a is a right now is a much more proven, better coach. I mentioned Chip Kelly. You know, another one we have a big discrepancy on is James Franklin. Um, and people are going to go, oh, he's a terrible game coach. I'm sorry. I don't know if too many other coaches. I'm short of maybe Nick Saban. I don't know if anybody else on this list who I could say, yeah, if they got the Vanderbilt job, would have done any as well, if not better than what James Franklin did there. Yeah, I was a little surprised you had Franklin as high as you do. Um, but there's no question what he did at Vanderbilt was remarkable. And he's he won, won a, by the way, yeah, he won a Big Ten title at Penn State, back to back top 10 seasons. Last year, you can say it sucked. They finished 17th last year. Yeah, no question. Uh, that's the Big Ten title, by the way, that Harbaugh doesn't have yet. So, uh, that's that's. And I have him above. I have, yeah. I have him above Harbaugh. You want to re- rethink having Dino Baber so low? I don't think I have him that low. You have him 20, right? I have him 19th. 19th. I mean, you know, it was remarkable. 10 win season last year. He's now he's now done this at three different schools. Uh, where do you have him? I have him number 14. Is that really that big? A you know, it's not. I thought you had him 20 as five or six. Now, spots. here's the one where we, I have to wonder what you're thinking on this one. We both have Jeff Munkin. In terms of group of five, and I'll admit, group of five underrepresented. Uh, I only have two of them. Jeff Munkin is one of them. You have Jeff Munkin, right? Mm-hmm. But I then have Bill Clark, who took a program that was literally shut down for two years, and within two years of getting them back up and running, wins his conference, wins co- National Coach of the Year. You don't have him in there at all. I don't. He's a terrific coach. I'm not going to say anything negative about him. You know, Bill Clark fits into the category of Neil Brown, Scott Satterfield, Tedford, of guys who I would have really liked to have had space for. But I don't know. Did you have Matt Rule or not? I don't think you did, right? He just missed the cut. I, yeah, I would have so liked it, to have had him in there. I wouldn't fault you for having him or not having him, you know? And that's... That's a that's a hard one. And somebody pointed to me. I had I had no group of fives. I had one. I had Munkin, but it's I could see why people are like why don't you have him? I could see why people are like why don't you have Kenny Montalolo? Look at my look at the logic I'm using. I'm not trying to to get too caught up in recency bias. He had one really bad year, and I don't have him. And he I, has I, backslid a little bit. Obviously, Munkin has taken control of that rivalry. And I don't think it's a coincidence that it is hap- it happened once Navy joined that conference. They had a great first year there. They played for the conference title, and then they've gotten a little bit worse with each passing year. I just think it's a lot harder, the level of competition they're playing now, than when they were an independent. Yeah. I mean, look, the first year in that league, they went 11-2. and two. And, I mean, they, they were 14-2 and two the first two years in that league. Keenan Reynolds. Uh, yeah, it's hard to – I mean, I don't, want, I don't know if I would call him a transcendent talent, but – there is something to be said, and I think the, the little bit of the backslide, 11 to 9 to 7 to 3, is something to be said for that. So let's do something different on this coming out of this. Give me the two guys, one up and one down, the guy who you think has the biggest chance to, to jump up the, your rankings, even if he's not in this, and the guy who has the biggest chance to fall. 
Well, the guy that has the biggest chance to jump is Scott Frost, because I think we both think he's going to do big things in Nebraska. And, you know, I don't know how big those big things will be, but if in the next couple of years he's winning 10, 11 games in a season at, at Nebraska, which hasn't, you know, done that in 20 years, then I would think he jumps pretty far up that list. And you want me to try to predict who will fall? Who could fall. Well, okay. I mean, we can also do this, you know, on our own list differently, whereas I would say probably Kirby Smart has the room to jump up on mine. I think Jimbo Fisher has a chance to jump up on yours. Mm -hmm. I don't know how much, just off a year, and I think Nebraska is going to be much better. I don't think Nebraska is going to be much better than like eight and four next year. And if he goes eight and four, I have 22nd. I don't see him moving, you know, into the top 15. Oh, you're talking about like this time of year from now? Yes. That's hard to, I mean, who knows? That's hard to say. It's more like longer term. I thought you meant kind of longer term. Like, for instance, Mark D'Antonio, who's had a fantastic run at Michigan State. Um, but they've just kind of not quite been the same the last few years. Even the year they won 10 games, it wasn't like they were at the level that they were with Connor Cook and um, name whatever defensive star you want to from, from the um, Pat Narduzzi era. So, you know, there's reason to wonder whether they're going to get back to that or whether it's just kind of going to be a little bit more like last season going forward, and in which case he might eventually fall off entirely. Yeah, I got asked this. Uh, I, this comment came on my, in my, uh, under my story. It was about where Coach O is on this. And I said, well, right now, it's, there's not enough there. Now, if they go and have another top 10 season, then I would, I would probably consider him. But right now, I don't think there's enough there given you have to factor in at least some of the old Miss days into that. If I'm factoring in other coaches' stops, you can't just take what he's, what he, the brief time at USC and then at LSU. But that leads me to another thing is, did you give any consideration to either Mac Brown or Les Miles? No, because, it's, again, it's not, a, <laughs> it's not a career achievement award. You know, Mac Brown would have last qualified for this list if I was doing one in 2009, and less uh, more recently than that, but you know, he's been out of it for what three years, and before you, that, you were a tough evaluator. You're well, tough I mean, there's there's absolutely no way reason to, to you would let me put tell Mac you something. Brown I there. just think right now when Matt Fortuna listens to this, he's going to go. But I've been on paternity leave for two months, and Stu's going. Matt Fortuna hasn't written anything since December, and he's going to get like really. You know, that's how you are. You're like, a, what have you done for me lately to the 10th degree? I mean, it literally says, all right, at the top, recent performance. Uh, well, you tell me how strongly, how strongly do you consider either of them? Mac, not as much for a little of what you said. Les Miles, Les Miles, I think, you look at what he did, and it's hard to say what his record was that he shouldn't be somewhere on here. Just on just on what he did, uh, I can't discard that, you know. So I mean, I didn't have him. I considered it, and it's almost like you kind of look for reasons to go. How can I defend this? You know, just based on what he did. Now I think after a year at Kansas, when he's taken a two and ten or whatever it's going to be, it's going to be a it's going to be a little easier and say, okay, well, we've seen towards the end the game started to pass him by, which I think you could make that case on Mac. One of the people who wrote into my column had said, had brought up Mac and said, well, how well he had recruited. Recruiting with Mac and the recruiting rankings were never the issue there. So it's, a, it's an interesting offseason debate subject for sure. 
Fair enough. By the way, one of our mailbag emails is taking to task a guy who we have number three in the most top 25 coaches. Okay, well, that's a good, that's a good place to start then. So Chris, Christian Smith, and oh, by the way, as always, send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. Christian Smith says, hey guys, I know that you both consider Chris Peterson to be an outstanding coach and leader of the Washington program. And this message is not intended to make you believe that I want him fired or replaced. But I do have one emerging issue that I truly believe needs to be investigated with Peterson and his coaching ability. Statement. Coach Peterson coaches well in the lead and poorly, parentheses nearly horrifically, from behind. And here are his numbers for that, to back that up. In 73 games as a Washington coach, 16 games in which the Huskies were behind at some point in the second half, 13 of them they could not come back, one of which was back and forth but they still lost, one of which they were down by one early in the third, quickly scored, and then went back and forth until overtime and won, and one comeback win. So I guess the question is, if you coach 16 games in which you were behind at some point in the second half, and you're the number three coach in all of college football, shouldn't it be expected that you would win more than one of those? I mean, that's an interesting snippet. I don't know. Is there? Is that? Does that seem unrealistic? Does it seem like a? That seems like kind of a, a nitpicking thing. You know, certain uh, guys, are gonna, th- certain guys are going to be able to come back in the way things operate than others. But I don't know. Maybe there is something to be. Maybe there's something. To by that. the way, he eliminated blowouts, so these weren't even games where they were trailing by yeah. twenty in the second half. Uh, oh, that's an interesting I think point. there's something to that for sure. It's that's a pretty big body of work. It's not like we're talking about three or four games here. Now, I don't really hold against him anything that happened the first two years when he was still getting the program up and running. Um, really, it's the last three seasons are the reason why he's as high on our lists, I believe, as he is. That Boise State, obviously. And, um, you know, I think, you know, truly one of the most interesting storylines of the whole college football season this year is going to be Jacob Eason. Because I think there's a feeling that Washington was really close the last couple of years. They went to the playoff. They went to the Rose Bowl. They couldn't, you know, take it to that next level. And I think a lot of people feel like because Jake Browning had a ceiling, you know, he wasn't. And that may have been part of some of these inabilities to mount a comeback. So is, is Jacob Eason, the former five-star quarterback, the guy that will take them to the next level? Or, are, you buying, are you buying stock on Jacob Eason? I don't know what I would be buying stock based on, right? I mean, he played one season at Georgia. He actually did lead some, now I think about it, he led two or three last-second uh, wins at Georgia. So maybe this is exactly what Chris Peterson needs. But he was like a 55% passer. Then he gets hurt one game into the next season, and he sat out last year. So, I mean, to answer your question, I, I don't have enough information to buy or sell stock there. I know, but if you're right now, you have the recruiting five-star piece of this. Yeah. Do you think Jacob Eason turns into at least a first-team All-Pac-12 quarterback? First-team All-Pac-12 quarterback. At Oof. some point in his career. There. Well, he's only got two years left to do it. Okay, um, well... You know, he's a I, I, I don't guy. know that I can go there just because the Pac-12 always has a lot of good quarterbacks. So you're not buying stock. I mean, not. he's going to be doing this alongside a bunch so of... So you're not buying stock. That's the qualification to buy stock? First team all Pac-12 quarterback. We're not talking about he's going to be the first pick in the draft. I'm just saying. Just just answer the questions, too. I think he'll be very good because Chris Peterson is his coach, but I can't go that far. What about you? I'm going to say no. Yeah. So my, we're my both going to say no. He's not going to. We're both going to say no. You're going to say he's not going to be. I mean, the only way that a five-star. You're, you're going to say he's not going to live up to being what you think a five-star quarterback. Right. So the only way a five-star quarterback can truly 
validate that ranking is to do basically what Trevor Lawrence is doing, right? To do what? No, it's not to do doing. that. You don't need to win a, just to win a national title. Not just win a national title, but be kind of otherworldly. Like, oh my gosh, this is such a rare talent. That's why he got the five star ranking. No, I, you need, I think you need to be you need to be the best quarterback in your conference, and you need to you need to be. I don't think you need to win a national title to do that. So, first team all conference quarterback. Can I do a quick look up who the other Pac-12 quarterbacks are right now? Well, you uh, know the, who the quarterback is in Oregon. You know who the JT quarterback Daniels. is in Stanford, K.J. Costello. Could Lil Tate uh, coming back? Yeah, we don't know what we're getting from him. We know Jack Sears and J.T. Daniels are coming back at USC. We know Steven Montez is coming back at CU. Yeah, I just think that's an extremely high... You, he could be, you know, you could He's be the... He's a five-star quarterback. I know, but you could be one of the... You could be, he could be a Heisman finalist and not necessarily be first-team all-conference because there's only one spot. So I'll say this. I think he'll be an upgrade from Jake Browning. Whether he'll be first-team all-conference, I don't know. Okay. Next question. Next question comes from Greg in Fairfax, Virginia. Hi, guys. Love the mailbag. That plus Bruce's interviews are my two favorite parts of the podcast. Thank you, Greg. I appreciate that. Yeah, you are you are a better interviewer than me. Uh, I'm I'm fully ready to admit that. Hopefully, for most of these interviews we do, it'll be both of us. And hopefully, as much we're not dragging su- down the as much, as much as this might surprise people from my tone right now, I think it's because I like people more than you do. Still, go on. Next, that's because you like people. <laughs> I like people more than you do. I like people. What are you talking about? I think you're you conflate sometimes like. The fact that I maybe take some shots at Kirk Ferentz or whoever here and there, like I'm not walking around in the world saying that person's overrated and that you 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 have developed a reputation as being salty stew amongst your former friends. Okay, so I've heard that. <laughs> I've heard that I have developed that reputation basically in the Fox Avocado Room, and you know I assume that they're getting that off Twitter. You're salty stew on Twitter. I mean, you you talk to me almost every day of my salty stew in real life. Not always. Not always, no. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, you know, who knows? Maybe I'm, I mean, like Darren Ravel, I'm playing a bit of a part. I don't know what that means. Let's go to the next Actually, question. I don't know if Darren Ravel's playing a part. That may really be him on Twitter. Let's go to the next Greg question. in Fairfax, Virginia. I love the mailbag. Oh, wait, we already started this. That's how we got down this tangent. Here's my question. Most college football fans would rank the SEC as the strongest conference and the Pac-12 as the weakest. How would you rank the other three? Well, I think you would. Well, I think you would look at it and say every year it's a little bit differently, mm-hmm. and it, it, it's somewhat. I don't know if it's somewhat cyclical, but it shifts. I would say, I would look at it this way. I would say SEC number two. I would say Big Ten. It's the ACC because Clemson is so good. It's hard to push them too far down. It's just when you have Florida State struggling. You certainly had Louisville fall apart under Petrino, especially last year. I don't know if I would have them there. Would you I mean, agree that the one conference that seems to sway the most from one year to the next is the Big 12? Because there's only 10 teams. There's only kind of two considered to be national brand programs. So if, like, for instance, when uh, Texas was really down, then everybody thought the Big 12 sucked. And now Texas is good. Uh, and Oklahoma's still doing what it does. And now, hey, the Big 12 is not as bad as we thought. Yeah, I think that's there's something to, to the numbers of that. Just like there's really only one team in that league that truly stinks, you know, consistently stinks, and that's KU. So 
Whereas you look at the other leagues, even in the SEC, where you have some variance between, okay, who's going to be pretty good and who's going to be really mediocre. I feel like Mizzou is a good example of that. You know, you just don't know necessarily what you're getting. And then by the end of the year, they turn out to have a pretty good record. I feel like when I look at the ACC, I'm starting to get that now. Whereas Clemson's a lock. I mean, you look at, by the way, a name we didn't, neither one of us had, which I think I would have had going into last year, Justin Fuente. And you wonder, and this is maybe a deeper conversation we should have on a different podcast this offseason, it feels like they are trending down with all the offseason moves and different issues they've had in the last 12 months there. But that's a, that's a conference where I think Miami is going in the right direction. I think Florida State will bounce back from this. I think Louisville will certainly bounce back. But again, I look at that league and it's a hard one. To me, the ACC is the hardest one to figure out, not the, not the Big 12. Just because here Syracuse just won you know, 10 games. And I clearly am a big believer in Dino Babers and the energy he has there. But it's a hard, it's a hard one to figure out. So I feel like I know what I have in the top two in the, in the SEC and then the Big Ten. And I feel like I know what I have in the number five spot which has been an underwhelming group from the from the Pac-12, but it's the other two that are kind of more of a wild card for me. I don't think the ACC situation is as complicated as you're making it out to be. Yes, Clemson's the best team in the country, but outside of that, the ACC right now stinks. So and is the ACC, you have the ACC four and you have the Big 12 three, and it's been consistently that way or just this year? Well, it varies from year to year. The ACC, I wrote, and many people wrote, that in 2016 the ACC was the best conference in college football. They, all the numbers backed it up. You know, the SEC outside of Alabama was very mediocre that year. It was the year that um, Auburn played in the Sugar Bowl 8-4. and four. And so, you know, here we are two, three years later talking about it being the fourth conference, and I'll make a prediction here. You know, as much flack as the Pac-12 takes, and it's all deserved, did you notice that both of us still had five Pac-12 coaches in our top 25? Chris Peterson, uh, David yeah. Shaw... Mike Leach, Mike Leach, Kyle Whittingham, Chip. and Chip Kelly. Yeah. So that tells me that that conference is probably going to rebound because it's all about the strength of the coaches in your conference. Um, the ACC might get there. There's a lot of, you know, like you said, a lot of shuffling lately. So my prediction is that this time next year, it'll be Pac-12 at least for ACC 5. Okay. Well, that's a good prediction. Sean in Chicago can you think of another example where a below 500 college coach that was fired for underperformance then went on to get a much better job like the one Cliff Kingsbury did with the Arizona Cardinals? I can think of one off the top of my head. Go I read a book about him. <laughs> I mean, Ed Ogeron had a terrible record at Ole Miss. Now, there was some gap in between, but he got, he went from, he basically got his dream job out of it. Now, again, there was some lag time in between uh, where he was able to reinvent himself and grow. Yeah, I mean, I can't off the top of my head think of one who did it the very next season. But I'll give you a very good example that comes to mind of a very underwhelming college coach who ended up taking the NFL team to the Super Bowl, Jim Caldwell. Yeah, when I was going to say that too. Jim Caldwell was at Wake Forest, 2-9, and 3-8, 1-10, He went to one bowl game, the Aloha Bowl, and then... I remember he worked his way up the ranks in NFL, and when he got that job and uh, went to the Super Bowl, it was just so surreal to me because I knew him still as the Wake Forest coach. Uh, another guy, if you go further back, uh, Danny Green was the coach at my alma mater during the record 
NCAA record losing streak and obviously went on to have to, to bigger and better things in the NFL. Okay. So there's your template, Cliff Kingsbury. I think factors were, were so different. I mean, this is kind of obvious to say now, but because of his offensive system, I think it was attractive because of the timing, because of Pat Mahomes' emergence. There's a whole bunch of you know factors that conspired to lead towards this outcome. Look, the fact that Matt Rule got an NFL interview last year when his team won one game for a head coaching job, I think that that tells you how and I'm not saying it would have been crazy for them to hire him because he he had traction this time on the interview process with the NFL. But I just think it shows you how fickle the nature is of some of this stuff. And sometimes the records, I don't want to say you throw the records out, but the records can can be a little overstated. I think the reason that, you know, I don't know if Cliff yeah, I don't know if Cliff will win in the NFL or not. But, you know, his downfall at Texas Tech was defense. And a big part of that was it's just really, really hard to recruit elite defensive players to Texas Tech. It just is. You take that element out of it entirely in the NFL. You know, his defenses will, will be good or not good uh, based on who his GM drafts and signs as free agents. So, you know, I think they hired him to run that offense and to, to turn his quarterback into the next Pat Mahomes. So we'll see if he does it. John Webb, Bruce and Stu, I just read the QB. He says six. When did the QB come out? 20. Oh my gosh, it has been six years. 20, probably 2014, 2013. Okay, Bruce and Stu, I've just read the QB six years after its publication. It's a fun book, especially knowing what has happened to all the QBs you detail, Bruce. So, how about an update? Which QB's fortunes have risen or fallen the most since 2014? And what's one trend in the QB guru universe that has developed in the past six years? Well, I mean, I followed so many different quarterbacks in there. The one I spent the most time with was Johnny Manziel. He just got let go in the CFL. His fortunes are clearly sunk now. There was some of the stuff that was in the book in the end. I remember I had there was a there was a personnel person person NFL personnel person I spoke to who had a really damning quote about Johnny's future in there that I think kind of foreshadowed a lot of stuff that ended up happening. But what's weird, and I, I may have discussed this before on our podcast, so in in the book process, I wanted to have Aaron Rodgers on the cover of the book. I had talked to Aaron Rodgers. There was Aaron Rodgers kind of the prototype for a lot of what young quarterbacks were aspiring to do, off-platform throws, play like Aaron Rodgers. There was just a lot of Aaron Rodgers in the book. And he'd won a Super Bowl. I, I was like, that's the guy I think we should do. I'm going to cover. When I got back from the publisher was they wanted a certain picture. It was of Nick Foles when he was in Philly. And they were like, no, we're going to blur out. So no one's going to know who it is. I'm like, you're going to know. It's First of all, it's number nine. And NFL people are going to know who that is. And Nick Foles the, that year ends up having a 26 touchdown, two interception, ridiculous season. But after that, he bounced around, and what's amazing was a year ago, he becomes a Super Bowl hero and beats Tom Brady. So that was an interesting one, uh, part of, also part of the book. It, it follows what was the quarterback recruiting class that, all, that basically has all got drafted last year, and Kyler Murray's also part of that class. But uh, most of those guys got drafted last year, so you kind of get a window into that. And it was all over the map, and I think one thing that, you've seen from the coaching part of it is the guys who 
seem to be more well-rounded and seem to have maybe not just thrown into quarterback coaching in sixth grade because maybe they don't have the passion for it. That's the part where, okay, these guys have a chance to flourish. And those are the ones that keep an eye on who are more well-rounded in things. And so that was, that was something that kept on coming up as I worked on the book. Unrelated. Uh, I'm supposed to go on Feinbaum later today to talk about the coach rankings. And mm-hmm. I think I just got a little preview of what's to come. His account just tweeted out a quote of his on the radio show just now. Mike Leach is not a top 10 coach. Let's be honest. He's a clown. So I guess I know where, where that interview is going. That's fine, but I'm saying that? Yeah. Well, you know what? The clown just led his, led a school to 11 wins, <laughs> the most they've ever had in any season. And that's after losing half his coaching staff and overcoming, or I don't say overcoming, but coping with a huge tragedy of lose, of the of, from Tyler Holinsky's passing. So yeah. no, no, no one, clown or not, did a better job of coaching in college football last year than Mike Leach. And he's nuts. I, I believe me, I, I'm not saying he's the most normal guy in the world, but what, he, what he's gotten out of his team on the field, he's the best coach Texas, at, Texas Tech has ever had, and what he's done at Washington State has been pretty remarkable. If not for Chris Peterson, maybe they'd have gone to a couple of Rose Bowls by now. He's just been... They would have, yeah. You know, the, the Mount Everest that he can't seem to climb. But other than that, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you look at... You know, I know Mike Price obviously took Washington State to a couple of Rose Bowls, so it's not like this is impossible to do there. But man, were they um, just in the absolute pits there for? Uh, yeah, they were not. They had won nine games in the previous four years. I mean, Bill Dobo would go. You know, that was a that was a mess. Paul Wolf. You know, they would they would make gradual improvements here and there, but for the most part, save um, your save your best stuff, Stu. Come on, I'm testing it Try out. I'm doing a little bit of a dress rehearsal here. Okay, this last one I actually don't know the answer to, so I'm hoping you do. From Russell. He says, I am a Michigan and a Rice college football fan, and notice that they both play Middle Tennessee this year. However, on the Michigan website, it refers to them as Middle Tennessee State, and on the Rice website as Middle Tennessee. So, which is correct? Well, I'm going to Google, Stu, and see. <laughs> Maybe we <laughs> yeah, but apparently if you source. Google it, you're going you're gonna to see both versions of it. I believe, I'll see what you say here, but I believe they were long... Middle, the, the actual university is still Middle Tennessee State, and they've long gone by that. But that athletically, recently, they've rebranded to Middle Tennessee. We'll see what you you'll see what you find out. According to this, they go by Middle Tennessee State on their uh, website. Mm-hmm. On their athletic so, website. You know, now it's called GoBlueRaiders.com, but I can see why you, you just see MT, not MTSU. On, on their logo. When they beat, remember they upset Michigan State in the NCAA tournament a couple years ago. I'm pretty sure on every bracket it said Middle Tennessee State. You know what's crazy is the first time I'm pretty sure I'd ever heard of them, and this is a long time ago. This is this would predate you as a basketball fan. I don't know when it was. I thought they had beaten, I think Kentucky in the tournament. And this might have been like in the '80s. Somebody will correct me on this, but I had never heard of Middle Tennessee State before, and. This is before I really knew a ton about directional schools. It might have even been the seventies for all I know, but I thought it was in the I thought it was in the early mid eighties or so. It's pretty it like, amazing what the NCAA tournament does for, for name recognition of schools. Like in college football, there's fewer schools and you know, at the end of the day, you know, I'm sure UCF has gained tremendous awareness, right, from the last few years, Boise State. But it's not like the NCAA tournament where these these 
really, really obscure schools can get themselves on the map, like UMBC last year. You just mentioned Middle Tennessee. Who had heard of Florida Golf? Who knew there was a university called Florida Golf Coast before that one NCAA tournament run? Probably Urban Meyer, because I think his daughter went there, and that's about it. Just to clarify, I've looked this up. 1982, the first round, MTSU beat Kentucky 50-44. to 44. There you go. Yeah, Your how memory, old were you in 1982? Like I was five? six. Six. That, my first NCAA tournament I remember watching was 85. We don't have a definitive answer to this yet. Maybe some Blue Raider fans can email. But as far as I can tell, the main, it's Middle Tennessee State on all their, like, their yeah. own stuff. But the place you see Middle Tennessee referenced the most is on ESPN.com. And their box scores, their team page, they're referred to as the Middle Tennessee Blue Raiders. So I get the confusion, um, and we'll, we'll hopefully get, uh, get an answer here. Send your answer to, if you actually know what we're talking about. If you're the SID at Middle Tennessee State, please email theaudiblepod at gmail.com. All right. This was a nice, long, uh, really long episode. Uh, to make up for last week's vacation. We'll see you next time. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to The Audible on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a five-star review while you're at it. It helps get the word out. Thanks to Trader Joe's for being our presenting sponsor. Our producer is Nick Fink. Our theme song is Dangerous by Kevin and the Octaves. You can download their music on iTunes and Spotify. Follow me, Stu, at... SL Mandel on Twitter and Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB and subscribe to The Athletic if you haven't done so already you can try it for free 7 day free trial at theathletic.com slash free trial so come on